As we turn over to God's Word in Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and there's a notes outline as well, and there's a whole lot of scripture references. Some of those are just to help you as we go, um, or, or to look back on later. We're not going to turn to all of those references this morning. Let me put you hopefully a little at ease there. But probably any of the verses that I reference this morning, you would find them there. And so you can go back to them, and then just some others that you, you might want to look into. But we're coming to the close of the Gospel of Luke, and what I call the glorious incarnation. That here we see the reality of Jesus risen among his disciples. They've encountered him already on, on, the, on the road to Emmaus. And those, those two came running back, and there they meet the other disciples. The other disciples tell them, even before they can get their story out, that the Lord is risen and he's appeared to Simon, to Peter. And so they're talking about these things, and there's, there's an excitement. But we're going to see Jesus risen, still in reality, fully human, and yet glorified. He's been changed. He's been transformed in some ways unrecognizable, not unlike those pictures. We don't know it exactly. Well, how will we be in the resurrection? How will we be when we are transformed and we are changed? We will still be human. We will be like Jesus in his raised and glorified body. It'll be different. It'll be something of what we understand as this, this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. It'll be a real physically human body yet suited for the future. And what we see in that, the reality that is true of Jesus that is also true of us, leads us to something. It leads into our mission, and it leads into how we will fulfill that mission. I want to give you an overview in one sentence, if I may, and that is the reality of Jesus risen is the basis for our mission to invite others into the joy of worship. There are three moves there. The reality of Jesus risen is the basis for our mission which is to invite others into the joy of worship. To say it another way, what you know about the risen Lord Jesus, you have to tell others to share his blessing of worship and joy with them. Sometimes we're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. It's an out of obligation, or it's driven merely by an intense need. That we will tell others where forgiveness in Christ can be found and trusted in because that is their ultimate need. If they die without that, then they're going to face judgment instead of receiving forgiveness and a life with God. That they would, would not be able to, well, we, we put it in terms of going to hell or going to heaven, separated from God or with Him in His presence. And yet... That's, a, that's a, a future location that's based upon a reality of relationship. And there's a reality of relationship that transcends if I'm going to escape judgment when I die or not. That that's incidental because of a new standing, a new belonging that we've been given. That our mission is not so much based on need as it is on worship. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So we're going to have three, three moves. First of all, we need to then, if the reality of Jesus risen is the basis for our mission, then we need to lay hold of that hope. We need to lay hold of the hope that we have been given. What's, what has 
become true of Jesus. What God has done in Jesus is also true for us. We then would, laying hold of that hope, that hope grabs hold of us, we will fulfill that he has surprisingly, I would say, entrusted to us. And that fulfillment, that witness, that carrying out of the witness of God's gospel will be not a matter of mere urgency, not a matter of great need, but it will be a matter of worship and it will actually flow out of worship. I'll say more of that when we get there. But first of all then, this hope that is set before us, what do we learn in the appearance of Jesus that impacts us, could I say changes us? Let's turn to Luke chapter 24, and we'll pick it up in verse 36. While the disciples are there in that room together discussing these things about Jesus is risen and has also appeared to Peter. And as they're talking about these things in verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, and he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So, Jesus appears, then with him in the room. We don't know how he gets there. We don't know that he walks through walls in his transformed, glorified body. That we do not know, but all of a sudden he's in the room. There's various explanations for that. He, he's no longer limited by time and space dimensions, perhaps. But all of a sudden he's in their midst. And they're frightened. And his word to them, his greeting to them, this, this completely unexpected, um, one-of-a-kind circumstance that, that, that is shocking to them and his his greeting to them is so mundane and common, and yet theologically rich. He says to them, peace. It would almost be like us saying, hello, how are you? It's that common and mundane in the first century society that when two Jewish people would meet one another, they would say shalom to you, to you shalom, shalom. It's just a, a recognition and a and a a a bestowal of blessing, a wishing God's favor upon the person. Peace to you. And so he says to them, peace. And yet it's a standard greeting, it's a common greeting, and yet it's, it's imbued, it's infused, it's filled with new meaning here, isn't it? There's more to this than there ever was before, because now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have peace, not only with God because Jesus is our peace, Ephesians 2, but we have peace with one another. It's a vertical peace that then spills out in a horizontal peace one to another. That we, Not only that, not only peace with one another, but we have um, the, the peace of God, the peace from God guards our hearts in the midst of anxieties and fears. That he has given us peace. And think about this. This is a bookend. And Luke does this several times. In fact, there's a handful of them right here in these few verses where something from the very beginning of the gospel now comes back at the end. Do you remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men of goodwill. 
he brings peace. And now that has been fulfilled in Jesus himself. The other thing we see here is Jesus takes several steps to assure them that he is indeed fully and truly human. That he is not a spirit being or a phantom or some translations would even say a ghost. This is not merely the spirit of Jesus, that it was just his spirit is risen. Where did the body go? The tomb is empty because he is bodily risen. His body has been raised and transformed, and yet it still bears the marks he shows them. He says the spirit does not have flesh and bone, is not solid as you can feel that I am. And so John later in 1 John will say, That which we have seen and heard, which our hands have handled. The reality of his human and bodily resurrection. He is fully human, tangible, solid. Not always recognized, and yet there's some aspects that remain from his, from his mortal body, those signs of his death. Now, while all of us bear some scars, maybe, maybe scars of, moder- of martyrdom as a badge of honor, I don't know. We have no basis for that. We do have a basis to understand that Jesus still bore the marks of his cross. Some have said, rather poetically, that the only, the only scars left in heaven, the only flaws of anybody in heaven, will be the nail prints in the body of Jesus. For us to remember what it was that he bore for us. I don't know if that's all there will be or not. I do know there is clearly the, the Mortal body is raised and transformed and changed. It's the same body. And what is true of him will be true for us, no matter how long it's been, and no matter how, whether fast processes or slow, that mortal body did corrupt and decay. That's a normal pattern of time, and yet is able to be raised again from the dead and transformed into this very physical and real but changed, glorious body. There is a glorious incarnation here. The incarnation itself is fantastic, that the Son of God takes on humanity. He becomes human. He is truly and genuinely human. Orthodox Christianity understands that that Jesus is as truly human as he is truly God. He's not somewhere in between. He's not one or the other. He's not one at some times and the other at another time. He is fully God and fully man. The Son of Man is, is, is the Son of God. And he continues in that humanity. He continues with that fleshly and bone body. He continues to eat with them. Have you got anything to eat? Here's a piece of fish. And as they did in Galilee, and so also in Jerusalem, this fish probably came in through the fish gate where the fish sellers would be outside um, and, and from the Mediterranean or from up in Galilee and bring their, their, their dried and salted fish for sale to those in the city. Very human, very normal, and it continues with him. We sometimes think about life and eternity floating around as spiritual beings, including a harp. How spiritual beings hold the harp, I'm not sure. But we can sit on a cloud, and we don't sink through, but we can hold a solid harp. Anyhow, that's, that's just not how it's going to be. That we have been made as human, and we will continue as human. But in the humanity that God intends, that God gives us that is suited for his kingdom and for eternity, is no longer mortal, is no longer corruptible, is no longer subject to death, no longer has the effects and the illnesses and the weakness 
of fallen humanity. That's Jesus' transformed body. It is changed. It is different. And yet it's the same, and he can still eat fish. I like fish. I'm glad for that. I don't know if they had a little lemon and tartar sauce that day, but I like fish. And much of what you like about life, the best things of life, continue in life, life with him. We are made human, and he has taken on our humanity, and he continues in it. And that is how committed God is to being in relationship and continuing in relationship with you and with me for all of eternity. He continues in a glorious incarnation. And as he is, so we will be, for we will be like him. 1 John chapter 3. We will be like him. He, we, we get a glimpse, we don't get all the details, but we get a glimpse of what our future bodily life will be like. We'll still be in relationship, we'll still be recognizable, we'll still be known by, there still be, if we're all recognizable, then guess what, we're not identical. We will not be identical then even more than we are identical now. We'll still look different. Yet imagine the differences of human appearance yet with full contentment. Without any comparison, without any wishing, I wish I was, I was um, taller like him, or I wish I was thinner like, like, like them. Without any of these comparisons, uh, um, I wish my hair was curly like hers, or I wish my hair was straight, or I wish I had hair at all. We won't have those comparisons. Now, I don't know. I, I'm holding on to the hair thing. I'm holding on to the fact that Jesus said, not a hair of your head will perish. Well, I've lost mine, but I'm, I'm trusting I'll get them back. But, but, you see, we will continue to be human, yet gloriously human. The glorious incarnation of, of, of Jesus into the future is something that tells us something about a future for you and I as well. That is beyond this life, there is life all that we know of the best of relational life together, and that he will be with us and continue with us. He said in the commission in Matthew 28, I am with you always, certainly in this age to the end of the age, but he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The Son of God fully intends to dwell with us and intends us to dwell with him forever. That was his prayer to the Father in John 17. That is going to be our experience. We already nibble around the edges. We don't see him, and yet as the children said, we don't see him present among us, and yet we know he is with us because he told us, I will never leave you. I am with you always. To lay hold of that hope that we receive already by faith Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. If we lay, as we lay hold of that hope, that strengthens us, that prepares us then to fulfill what it is he's entrusted to us. The conversation with him continues. Now that they see that he is, he is truly there, it is truly him, he is, he is gloriously human. Then he said to them, in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And you're thinking again, what? That he had to suffer, he had to die, and then he had to raise, right? That, that, why are they surprised at his resurrection? Here it is again. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer 
And on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You're the one. You're the one who's going to tell it. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, this sounds somewhat familiar. Uh, this seems to be a, a compacter version of, of his um, appearing with them in his resurrection and also the commission and, and especially the ascension, which we're going to read shortly, all that also occur in the first chapter of the book of Acts. It's a little more compressed, and, and so there's some repetition between the two because they are separate books. They weren't bound together in one volume. They were separate writings, and, and churches could have one or the other, at least initially. And so there's some repeat in between the two. And yet this is a, a compact version of his commission to them that includes something unique. First of all, all things about him. In, in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the purpose of the book, the purpose of the Bible for that first century generation, the purpose of the Old Testament was to reveal Jesus because the purpose of the Old Testament is to reveal God. God in Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, yes, the things of the Son of God are all through the Old Testament. I've given you a few examples of that in your notes, um, bro broken down to the books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books. The prophets, which would include the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets are what we think of as the historical books. Joshua, Judges, Kings, Chronicles. The, the, the latter prophets would be what we think of as the prophetic books. And then the, the Psalms or the writings, the poetic and wisdom books of the New Testament. Also some of the history. And so in these, three, in these three divisions, he's saying... The book is about me because the book is to reveal God to humanity. That's why we treasure our Bibles. Here is how we can know God. Not just in my perception of what I would like God to be like, but here God shows us surprisingly what he is like in ways that are challenging to us, some, 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 somewhat beyond our comprehension. And yet he opens our eyes that we can understand it. And so... He said there are some essentials in all of these, in Moses and in the prophets and even in the, even in the Psalms, that in each of these places there are some essentials that had to happen. You can see it in, in, in each of these. You can see it that, that the, the Christ had to suffer, that had to be fulfilled, that he had to die to bear our transgressions in his own body on the tree, that he had to be raised from the dead, that you would not allow your Holy One to undergo corruption. And did you catch the third essential? This is, this is God's overall grand redemptive plan. And that overall grand redemptive plan includes the lamb slain from the, before the foundation of the world. The Christ must suffer. That's essential number one. What's essential number two? And he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. He had to rise. Do you realize without no resurrection, there is no forgiveness, there is no salvation? That our justification is wrapped up in the resurrection, which we are identified with Christ. We are identified with him in his death. If he still bears our sin in his body, then we are not saved. But if he rises from the dead in that same body and ascends into heaven and sits down in that body that bore our sins, sits down at the right hand of the Father, does your sin keep you from God? 
If it keeps you from God, it keeps his from, him from God. You see the importance? Not only in his death for us, but also in his resurrection. The resurrection is God's amen to Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. He can only rise because our sin has been forever put away, paid in full. Okay. But I said there were three essentials. Christ must die. Christ must rise from the dead. And the third essential for God's purpose in our salvation is that he has to be what? Proclaimed. It was right there. He must be proclaimed. How will they believe unless someone tell them? You cannot believe and trust in that which you have never heard. And so somebody must tell, and must tell not only Israel, but must tell the nations. Isaiah 42 says, it's too small a thing. It's too little a thing that you would be the salvation for only Israel. But you will be the Savior to the ends of the earth. All nations will be blessed in him. Well, that was the promise to Abraham, wasn't it? In you will all na- in your seed shall all nations be blessed. Okay? And yet, how will that happen? He has to be proclaimed. He has to be told. And here, that third must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled that he dies. It must be fulfilled that he rises. It must be fulfilled that he's proclaimed. And that third one, the critical juncture in our day, has been entrusted to us. Jesus is the one who dies. Jesus is the one whom God raises him from the dead. And yet now the third essential God has put into your hands and mine. And right about now, you may be having some turmoil in your head that says something like, God, what were you thinking? Why not just, you you had a good thing going. Nailed number one, nailed number two, carry out number three. Why would you give that to us? That's how closely he has now bound himself into relationship with you and I. He doesn't keep this to himself. This is shared with us. Now, we're not on our own in it. He said, but wait in Jerusalem. I will send you the Holy Spirit of promise. I will send you the Spirit of the new covenant. So that even as Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim deliverance to the captives, so the Spirit of the Lord is upon you, for the Lord has anointed you by His Spirit in order to proclaim Him among the nations. It's a glorious incarnation that this gospel of the life incarnate in Jesus himself in his death and in his resurrection. This gospel, good news of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness has been given then to the church to live out and to walk in and to proclaim and to declare and to make known among all kinds of people around us. It's a glorious incarnation then not only of Jesus, but it's a glorious incarnation of the gospel in to his church, his people, his saints, those who believe in Jesus. This has been given to you. This has been given to me. There's another one of those bookends here. Do you remember early in the Gospel of John, we meet this priest named Zechariah. He's going to be the father of John the Baptist. He is going to bear a son late in his life, kind of like, a, like a, this generation's Abraham. And uh, his son, late in life, is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And yet this seems too good to be true. It can't be for me. as Zechariah himself can't believe it. Because he can't believe, he's got nothing to say. 
If you can't believe, you got nothing to say. And yet, and yet Zechariah does come to believe, and then he who at first did not believe becomes a central participant and a primary declarer of the wonderful thing that God has done that stretches far beyond his son to Messiah himself. That's the testimony of Zechariah. That's what he declares to all those around him. Well, likewise, now these disciples, who are the first of how Peter will describe them and us as a new kingdom of priests unto God, these who at first themselves can't believe it, they also, and you with them, will become central participants in the fulfillment of God's salvation in his Messiah. You see what God has done? What he began with Zechariah, now he's fulfilling through the disciples and by extension from them to us as well. This wonderful third move of God's redemptive purposes has been entrusted into our hands. He's given it to the church. The reality of Jesus risen is the basis for our mission. And in our relationship with him, the third move of this plan, he has put into our hands. He's given it to us. So then, at the bottom of your notes page, there's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul grabs hold of something David says, and he brings it into life for us. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what was written, I believed, therefore I spoke. So also we believe, and so also, so then we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring you into his presence. Do you see that? Jesus is truly risen. I believe that Jesus is truly risen. And because Jesus is truly risen, he will raise us also with Jesus. His glorious incarnation will be our glorious transformation so that we can be with him in his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As this word then is proclaimed, as this word, this good news of salvation, forgiveness in Jesus is shared with people, what's the result of that? The church gets bigger? That's not the result of that. 3,000 were added to the church, it says in Acts, but that's not the main takeaway. 3,000 worshipers were added. It increases in thanksgiving to the glory of God. The reality of Jesus risen is the basis for our mission to invite others in to the joy of worship. And we see it first in his disciples. Look at verse 50. In fact, they will witness out of their worship. Their worship overflows as a witnessing declaration of praise to those around them. Look at verse 50. He led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. You see, he purposely uses that same word blessing. It's the same Greek word as well. It has a range of meaning that includes two main meanings. The first is to, to, to call down um, gracious power or favor or benefit from God to people. That's how Jesus is blessing them. 
He's, he's calling down God's favor upon them, God's, God's help upon them, a, a gracious enabling power. And they are blessing God. Hear the, hear the word. The Greek word is how we commonly use it in terms of today's. We, it's the Greek word eulogeo, which is where we get our word eulogy, which means to speak well of. Somebody dies, and then we have a service together, and we speak well of them. Too bad we didn't speak so well of them before they died. That might have been more encouraging to them. But we speak well of them. We declare their praise. That's what they're doing here. They're speaking well of God. They're declaring his praise. And they don't care who, they don't care who hears it. I can imagine somebody, hey, don't sing, don't, don't sing and talk and praise so loudly. You're going to attract attention. Others are going to hear us. And they say, we love for others to hear us because this is too good to keep to ourselves. As Paul and Peter would later say, we cannot, I paraphrase slightly, we cannot help but sing and say the things that we have seen and heard, the things that God has entrusted to us. We cannot keep to ourselves. But it overflows. And now as you, as you lean into the book of Acts, they are not just going to the temple because that's where they're going to find a bunch of people and they have been charged to make sure that everybody hears. No, they go to the temple because there is the place where we worship and celebrate the presence of God, God in the midst of his people. And God has restored us into right relationship with him. We belong with God. We'll go to the temple and there we'll declare his praise, his goodness, his salvation, his forgiveness. And we we don't care who hears. We hope everybody does. And it overflows out of them. Last we saw him leading them to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. And now he leads them from Jerusalem for his ascension. And then they return to Jerusalem, the place of the center of the opposition. In fact, not just Jerusalem. They go to the temple, the opposition, the chief priests and scribes' headquarters. And there they worship. There they declare God's glorious praise. They worshiped him, his deity. You know, our first mission is not necessarily evangelism. It's one of those shocking statements I could say as a former missionary. Our first mission is not necessarily evangelism. What if our first mission is worship? And what if evangelism flows out of our worship? Our yielding of ourselves wholly before the God who is worthy. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I will say what you want me to say. Lord, here I am an offering in your hands. What if any mission began with worship? Because as John Piper has said, the goal of mission, the goal of evangelism, worldwide, the goal of missions is worship. Um, missions exist, he says, because worship does not. And the fulfillment, the completion of the, the completion of the end, the game, the, the goal of missions is not more people saved so that they go to heaven. The end goal of missions is more people worshiping and praising the God who is worthy. How will that ever leak out of us to people around us if that is not in us and flowing from us? They begin not running out to tell somebody else. They begin in worship. That's how it starts. 
I'm convinced the most impactful witness flows from a worshipful life, not to be defined as how many times in the week you were in a church setting. You can be in a church setting without worship. But in the midst of life, does your praise to God, your adoration for Him, leak out to people around you? What comes out of you among others in the midst of all the common stuff of life? You know how Peter describes evangelism as be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you? That doesn't mean, hey, you can be as quiet as you want until somebody asks. What about your life in worship is salt to their thirst that would cause them to ask. If your life actually is an overflow of worship to God, it will be different, it will be unique, it will be, again using a word from Peter, peculiar. It'll stand out. It'll be noticed. The most impactful witness flows from a worshipable life, and God is best blessed. God is blessed, spoken well of, when we speak of the gospel by which his love, his mercy, his kindness toward us, his patience, his, kind, his, his long-suffering, all of that is so clearly and fully seen. So they return to Jerusalem, a place previously threatening. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. They are continually in the temple. They are no longer in hiding because the reality of his resurrection has laid hold of them. The hope of their future in Christ has grabbed hold of them so that in that they can go forward in this mission by the power of the Holy Spirit upon them, continually in the temple, in the center of opposition, blessing God, declaring His praise. In evangelism, that is not, first of all, rebuking unbelievers for not acting like Christians. Why would we do that? Why would we be expecting unbelievers to act like Christians, rebuking them for their behavior. I remember somebody told me years ago, a well-known Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee, he said, if you're not a Christian, you may as well suck this, suck this life, this world like a lemon for all that you can get out of it because that's all you've got. But we have so much more. We have, we have all of Christ and His future for us that we don't need to cling to things today. Generosity flows out of worship, you see. I can give freely even for the needs of others around me. I can share that which I have. I can practice hospitality because I trust myself to God who is worthy of my trust. Evangelism best occurs by declaring the goodness of God in the midst of the obstacles and the oppositions that we encounter. Let others see our hope. The disciples, well, the book closes now. It'll pick up in Acts. We'll hear more. But the book closes now, continually blessing God. They've been commissioned as his witnesses, and yet that's not what we find them doing we find them continually declaring the goodness of God in the temple, around others. They have laid hold of the hope that they have in Christ really risen so that they can carry out that which has been entrusted to them, which will flow out of worship that invites others into a trust of God 
that brings them into worship. The reality of Jesus risen is the basis of our mission to invite others into the joy of worship. A takeaway then for us would be this. It's not who do I need to witness to. It's Lord, how do I better worship you? How do I better worship you in the regular stuff of life? How could I declare your glory in my worship of you in life in ways that would invite others into worship? Let's pray. Father, that could be a whole nother, a whole nother discussion for us. The ways in which we worship in real life. And Lord, the book continues. The 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 acts, certainly the letters. Describe just that. Those things that we are called to do as we live in our faith, these are all acts of worship. So, Father, that which we know, this morning we're reminded of. We've been given new life. We can lean toward a life that we will live in in relationship with our risen Savior. A glorious new incarnation a new, changed humanity. This is our future. So, Father, as we trust you for that, let us lean toward that reality today. Free our hearts from the distractions and the worries and in the troubles of life that we encounter and in the troubles in which we would comfort others around us. Lord, set our eyes on your hope. And let that be what others hear from us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.